I'm not much, but I'm all I think about at all yeah. times. <laughs> My name is David Cunningham, and I'm an alcoholic. Yeah. Happy birthday. Thank you. Welcome to our new folks here tonight. Uh, the record for sobriety is 24 hours. And this is a one day at a time program. And we welcome you to find what we've found. If you're new here tonight and you don't know whether you're an alcoholic or not, that's okay. What I want you to remember is at the end of the evening, you're in a room with me. <laughs> That'll be the 21st question on the 20 questions. I might be an alcoholic. If you're in the room with David Cunningham, <laughs> you might have a problem. <laughs> I'd like to thank Greg for coming out tonight. <laughs> Myself, like Greg, we're, we're not regular speakers and we're terrified of it, but we're more than willing to do it anywhere at any time. And he always says yes, because this is my yearly Super Bowl commitment speaker meeting. I'd like to thank Christy and uh, Brian for inviting me. Thank you very much. I can tell you all sorts of great stories about Greg. <laughs> Those only occur on brunches one Sunday a month after the morning meeting. And Greg will tell him himself. I don't have to tell him uh, unlike Greg, I was uh, not from an alcoholic family per se. Dad had a drink every now and then. Mom's religion didn't, there was no drinking, smoking, or anything. We didn't take med medicine, we didn't take aspirin, nothing, faith healing. Grew up like that. Dad had, Dad had a beer or two on Saturday after he cut the grass. I was like, no big deal. It wasn't until I got to Alcoholics Anonymous, uh, to the recovery home, when the, uh, the leader of the home, Jim Nugent, said to my mother, so who's the alcoholic in the family? And then I found out that Grandpa was, who I never met. And I never met him because he died of alcoholism, drinking while on antabuse in the 1950s. Okay? These are things you learn after you get here. So this is a family disease in my family as well. It just wasn't told to us. It wasn't understood by my parents that it was a disease. It was a, I've had several of my brothers were very upset. They were told they might have something. And when I got here, there was a part of me that wished they had it too, because I wished misery on everyone because I was miserable. And I wanted you to be miserable too. None of them have it. I'm the oldest of four boys. I grew up in uh, Chatham, New Jersey. Wonderful little area. Hello, Sheldon. <laughs> uh, this is in the 1960s. In the 1960s, it was a very wholesome environment. There was no beatings in our home. There was no, uh, there was no drinking. And uh, with, what was going on in the 1960s was they were shooting the presidents. They were showing the nightly news of this, the blood trails in Vietnam of the people we were shooting at. If you ran for president and you related to the last president, they would shoot you too. If you stood up for civil rights in this country, they shot you. Our cities burned. 
we would practice duck and cover at school. So imagine you're three, four, third, fourth, fifth grade. That meant duck and cover was we were worried about nuclear war and our protection of us was to pull our chairs back and get under the desk. <laughs> duck and cover. This was normal. We didn't know nothing other than that. Tim, what's the score? Are you looking at your higher power? <laughs> Don't invite me here on a night when it's a sparse audience. I'll pick you off one by one, Brent. Not tonight, one by one. I'm a grateful alcoholic, and uh, I was fortunate enough to. Uh, Zoom last night meeting. Good evening, Zoomers. I see you kind of on the screen there. Welcome. I was in a Zoom meeting all day today for Alcoholics Anonymous, 9 a.m. till 3 p.m., watching people fight over different variations of words to use in a statement. This is how Alcoholics gets to, Anonymous. The work gets done by volunteers such as us and such as you. That was my day today. It was a wonderful day. My last drink was at a sober wedding. <laughs> I wanted them to take their hats off because I was drinking like a gentleman. I was. You still don't think you're an alcoholic? You're in a room with me. My, my first drink was like on a Boy Scout winter camping trip. I think I stole a few beers from dad and we drank them and it tasted like crap. I did not feel any comfort and ease. I thought, oh, this is nasty, but I've got to drink it because the other kids will, I don't want to see them see me not drinking it. I want to be part of up, part of, I want to be accepted. And I think I had a beer, maybe two. I was probably 14, 15 years old. So it wasn't an immediate love affair. That was to come shortly thereafter. Uh, drinking was something very acceptable where I grew up back east. A lot of Italian families, a lot of Irish families. You would go to their homes and drinking was just, it was okay that the kids drank. They drank it wine with dinner. And by the time I was a junior in high school, mom and dad never cared because they had basements back east. So you would go down in the basement, shoot pool and drink beer. And they didn't care. I'm like, wow, this is really cool. We go to the Feeney's house. We go somewhere else. The Cronin's house. And it was okay. It was acceptable. Drinking was a way of life. I saw everywhere around me I looked. I saw people drinking. Drinking and driving was not yet a crime in this country. It happened. People died. But it was not against the law, really. You know, it was like, hey, can you make it home? It was that. I was fortunate several times of that. I haven't mentioned that I do have a sobriety date. It's 5-11-1990. I did not get here that day. More on that later. I learned to drink with my friends in a barn. It was cold back east. We'd be around a little space heater up in the barn, just drinking three beers on a Friday night or a Saturday night. And that's all you could afford. You know, you didn't have a job. You were a kid. Steal money from my dad. 
I forgot to mention I'm a liar, cheat, and a thief. All three. An alcoholic. I don't know if that's mutually exclusive, or it was just part of the deal. <laughs> I was able to put away a few beers every every Friday night or Saturday night, and, and uh, I think my senior year in high school, I had uh, I had a bottle of vodka in my golf bag because that's the best place to hide it. And that thing lasted a really long time because we'd mix it with Tang on the golf course. Yeah, Tang is, yeah. But that's, I was able to see, because we'd go to the family parties and whatnot, and I'd, and I'd see the successful people. And they'd be in the pink shirts, and the green pants, and the big red bulbous nose. And they would just, this would be like, you're at the country club and you see, I want to be like that. They drank scotch and some nasty stuff when you're 18 years old. Never tried it too much after that. But that was my idea of what a successful guy was. And he worked in New York City. He probably worked on Wall Street. And that's what I saw. And at the same time I saw this, I knew I wasn't good enough for it because my, my parents weren't like that. They weren't socially acceptable in my eyes. They were very square, you know. There's another thing that happened in the 60s, too, and that was called the hippies. The hippies happened then, too. So you've got the, the war going on, the fear of duck and cover, and free love, and drugs, and different kinds of music than they were playing on the AM radio back then. And you heard about it. And some of the greatest stars before I even was able to drink, they were dying. Jimi Hendrix was dead. Janis Joplin was dead. Jim Morrison was dead. They all drank or drugged themselves to death. But it's not something you click on as a kid. I said, I'm, I want to do what they did. I want to do what they do. I want to drop acid. and I want to go to the electric cooling acid test. That was, a, that was a goal of mine. It became a quest. I made it. You're in a room with me. <laughs> So, you know, high school ends. Uh, I get sent off to prep school for a, a repeat senior year because I didn't get into the college I wanted to. And I wanted to play soccer at the University of Richmond, and it wasn't happening. I was on their wait list. So I went off. It's called the post-grad year. Post-grad year turned out to be a year where we went skiing every day, and I learned that I could sign my parents' name at the bar inside uh, the ski resort, and I could get drinks. I'm like, oh, this is awesome. The parents had no idea. They would get the bills and just pay them. Prep school was great. I really came into my own. I was a really young, I was young. I was the youngest member of my class senior year. I was graduated at age 17. I wasn't legal to drink. Drinking age was 18. I don't know if any of you guys have experienced that who were younger, but the drinking age was 18. So that means by 16, you could probably pass and go to the store and buy beer. You could certainly go to New York City. I got thrown out of my first bar in New York City at the age of 16. Not for drinking, but for smoking a joint at the table in the bar. <laughs> and the other patrons would just pour. You have to leave when that pitcher's done, son. And the other patrons would just fill it up and tell them. 
That's what it was like. And I was a really young looking 16 year old. So anyway, I get to, I get to, uh, I get to prep school. I turn 18 in prep school and I'm, I'm legal to drink finally. And that was just wonderful. In Vermont, uh, they had state stores, state liquor stores. We heard somebody from the podiums talking about that. I think last week or the week before, state liquor stores. You, you could buy hard alcohol only at the state store. That's when I got first introduced to Mad Dog 2020 because you could get a lot of them and you hitchhike to the next town over into New Hampshire. You could go to their state store and get a lot of them and then bring them back and, and sell them at prep school because you know, that's what you do. That's what you do. I had a roommate in prep school. His name was uh, Rob. And Rob was uh, from Fairfield, Connecticut. And he introduced me to all sorts of tie stick and other strange stuff. He ended up smoking opium. We called him veg. Much like Greg said, you just want to sit in the corner. <laughs> yep. And I was never into that. And uh, I was just to sell some weed, drink. But Rob got us thrown out of prep school because he was doing bomb hits in the room and one escaped. And the, the uh, RA across the hall came in and there was a big cloud of smoke. And that was just, there was a no, no smoking rule. So if you lit a match, it was the same if you were getting high. That means you were expelled from prep school. This was supposed, this was now a new pattern that I was to develop was being expelled from places, thrown out, asked never to return. Prep school was the first. So come home. I am not in good standing with the family. They can't understand why this happened. Off to college, I go in the fall. You can really drink in college. Okay. I, I failed to mention that uh, there's a few books that I was starting to pattern my life after. And one of them was the book, of, the book of the Dead by Hank Harrison. No one here gets out alive, the Jim Morrison Doris story. And the third and most wonderful book I've ever read was Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. And I set out to do all of the above in there. I never ran into adrenochrome. I don't know where to get it. Getting the ether was very difficult. <laughs> but that was what we set out to do. And in college, all there were no rules in college. And there were no one here gets out alive, but Jim Morris's story was basically boiled down to this. There are no rules. No. There are no rules that apply to me. Because don't you know who I am? I get thrown out of college by the uh, end of sophomore year. I was asked not to return. Something about throwing a death party, dead animals, fires, burning couches going out to fraternity windows. But being the alcoholic I am, I went into the dean of students and, I, and he started going off on me and I got very calm. And then I got up and I walked out into his secretary and made another appointment and asked her when I could come back when he wasn't so crazy. And he had lost his shit. And 
I had that effect on people. I was able to push buttons. I was being an instigator, something I did very well. A professional instigator at, at age 20. <sighs> My reward for that was I, I started driving a cab <laughs> from Summit, New, Jer New Jersey into the city every now and then. But once a day, I'd pick guys up at their house at five in the morning, take him into the building they own. And my family was well connected. So my other job was to work for a state senator, Leanna Brown, who was friends with our family. Uh, her and her husband had both gone to Yale. And my dad had gone to Yale. My mom had gone to Harvard. So there, there's... There's this level of uh, smartness that I'm just not tapping into because I want to do what I'm doing. But I was her driver. This is the 1980 uh, Republican uh, presidential campaign year. And I was her driver and I would wear the green pants and the pink shirt and the, uh, the blue jacket. And I would, get, I would make drinks at backyard fundraisers and people would just get hammered. I'd have to, husbands would come up, it's not so heavy with my wife the next, because people would just be hammered. And I'm standing there drinking, smiling, standing like this. And that's when I discovered black beauties because, well, <laughs> I'm going to drive this lady around. I've got to be awake. Be, be, <laughs> yeah. And I remember being at Republican headquarters that uh, 1980 down in Newark, and it was happy days are here again. And there I was with a scotch. I was with my people. Everything was good. What happened? What happened? What happened to me? Around this time, I also went to, a, I, I discovered that going to Grateful Dead concerts was something I really liked to do. And I liked to drop acid and I liked to drink a lot after I dropped the acid. And, and I began following them around. So after about a year of that at home, things were not well. My, my ass was on fire. I needed to flee the state of New Jersey. And I ended up in California, and that was in 1983. Now, not before we went on the uh, Dose Everything We Come in Contact tour of 83. It started in Hampton, Virginia, went up to Maine, back down to Philly, and then to New York, up to upstate New York, over to Pennsylvania, over to Binghamton. So that was 13 shows and 17 nights, and we had sheets of blotter acid. Everything we came in contact with got hit. They, whether they knew it was coming or not, that's who you're in a room with. Okay. After that tour, I had already known there was something wrong that I just couldn't put my finger on. You hear it talked about in these rooms like there's a hole in your gut and you can't fill it. And I didn't, I didn't know what it was until I got here. I didn't know what it was. I was trying to fill a hole that was unfillable, which means you drank more towards it. It's like just pouring gasoline on fire, and I head for California. Ended up at my fraternity house in UCLA because, well, why not? They had a keg on tap. That was my start here. I lived on their couch. I drank beer all the time. I, I rushed other fraternities. There's so much fun living up at UCLA. <laughs> That's who you're in a room with. 
Drinking was kind of benign. I hadn't picked up any DUIs yet. And then I discovered cocaine, or it discovered me. I'm not quite sure how that happened. <laughs> I was with a group of guys and we had a, somebody was living off an accident settlement. You know how we are with our friends that are like, they run into a bunch of money and they want to spend it. We're willing to help. We, are, we had a beach house in Hermosa and there was five of us in there. I was the only one working. I worked at a liquor store in Brentwood because, well, I could steal money, liquor, and cigarettes from there on a daily basis. Now, I had to take a two-hour bus ride to get there. I was the only one in the house working, but that place was just insane for five or six months. And then the money ran out. People fled one by one back east, leaving me out here. And for the first time in my life, the fear was so great. I didn't know what to do. I couldn't go back. I told everybody I wasn't coming back. My ego would not allow me to go back and admit any kind of mistakes. And what would I do? What would I do? Go back to school? That school that threw me out had let me back in, and then I went out with a zero, zero, zero. I forgot to mention that part because I couldn't do it. So I'm out here and I bought a car. It was a 1960 Rambler. This is the first car that I lived in. I lived in that Rambler. It was a station wagon. I had a mattress behind the front seat. And over the top of that, I had a, a thin futon so I could hide under there. And I used a disc drainer to pop it up so I could have a little breezeway. And I lived right above the beach in Santa Monica there. It was, it was some fine living. <laughs> you know? And I... Seven o'clock, they opened the restrooms up at the beach and you went down and I parked it. It was free parking there. And uh, that's what I was doing. I had a little job in the marina, at Marina Del Rey at a hotel, in like the arcade slash uh, fast food kind of place thing. And I remember I got paid there one uh, Thanksgiving. And there used to be a, a, a liquor store yeah. There used to be a bar called the Two Drops of Scotch that was on Lincoln Boulevard, probably right on the Venice, Santa Monica border area. And the people you find on Thanksgiving Day in the Two Drops of Scotch are exactly who you think you find there. <laughs> I was there. <laughs> and I would call back east and I would tell them how well things are. I'm a liar. I'm a thief. I'm a liar. I am fearful. I don't even know why I'm fearful yet. I don't know. All I know is that I'm doing the best I can to get loaded whenever I want, how I want. Okay. That job led me to look for another job, which turned out to be the Westwood Car Wash. So at the corner of Westwood and Little Santa Monica is the Westwood with car wash is now called the blue wave for any fact checkers out there. <laughs> 1984, I'm going to say I was there. I was there until 1989. I spent five years at the Westwood car wash. I was uh, the only English speaker there. I went in for the cashier job so I could steal from them. And they thought, I said, well, why don't you go out here and work out here and dry cars off? I'm like, okay. All right, sure. 
I had never met a Mexican before. They don't have them where I grew up. It was, it was a different experience for me. I was living in my car. And I would park that car at the train tracks right by the car wash. They'd look at me. And then I started hanging out with them. And they drank like I drank. And fortunately, God put a 7-Eleven abutting the car wash. So we really didn't have to go too far. <laughs> and we would drink all day long there. We would just pay the guy at the 7-Eleven and keep our beers in the cooler and just run in and out of there all day long. And there'd be a whistle. And they'd give you signals. What are you bringing? Short one, tall one. What are you bringing? And the one little guy there, little Jose, used to give me money in the morning, first thing, 8 a.m. He'd have a big gulp. He called me boy. And he said, boy, go get me a bottle of uh, uh, rum. What's the rum? Uh, not Ron Rico. What's the other one? Bacardi. Go get me a bottle of Bacardi rum. And he would dump that thing into his, his big gulp, and we'd start the day. And i go, well, that was really good. There was five brothers related to Jose at the car wash. Jose was the first one to die of alcoholism. His brother Gilbert was the second one. Strength drank themselves to death face plant. Juan had it together the most. He was the manager. I remember carrying him home one night. That was, he drank himself to death. And then there was, there was two other brothers. Ramon, also known as Mahin Flick. He bailed me out of jail once. I didn't know that was his name until that day. Mahin Flick. I go, how, many, how many names do you have? He goes, buddy boy, I got lots of names. <laughs> lots of names. He drank himself to death as well. And the youngest brother, Tony, he had, they had a different father. I think they had, he had one eye, wild hair. He would call me Ace. Ace, let's go do some booyah, Ace. And I can, and by this time I'd been introduced to crack cocaine by my best friend Alan, and uh, it wasn't the elegant freebasing thing that I'd also seen. This involved going to the projects and staying there for days at a time. I like that. <laughs> I had money from working the car wash. You might think, hey, don't make I make good money at the car wash. I always had money to do everything I wanted to do. And I worked six days a week. The seventh day was tough sometimes, but you, maybe you slept for that day. <clears throat> I had no defense against Tony when he would come by and say that. I could go for weeks at a time and just drinking, holding it together. But when he said that, I knew it was about to happen. I was about to disappear for two or three days. And I was going to spend every dime I had. I was going to spend every dime I could get my hand on. I might probably owe money after this was done, too. Because once you got over the fear of going to the projects, tucking in the projects was no big deal. I knew where to go. I knew who to see. They tucked me away. I've seen things there that just don't need seeing. And uh, I somehow survived all that. When I got to Alcoholics Anonymous, I was 145 pounds. 
They had just put me in a hospital like many of you have been in the hospitals. I was there for 10 days up in uh, Los Altos, which is Long Beach. At that time, I had, uh, my brother had, had come, my brother had been camping in uh, Yosemite and some from Vermont and somehow my best friend who wasn't as bad as I was called my family and said, come get him, he's dying. And he was right. I was doing illegal things. I was involved in criminal behavior. I didn't care. I did not care. I never did. I was a danger to myself and others at all times. Okay. My, and my brother says to me, dad thinks you need to see a doctor. And, I was like, Man. and I'm, by this time, I'm living in MacArthur Park downtown. There's a hotel there called the Barbizon. And I'd been there for six months. And it's a nightly hotel. You pay by the night. $15 a night. 105 bucks a week. I was living by myself and I'd work, I'd come home, I'd smoke crack. I had a dollar five left to catch the bus from there down to little Santa Monica every morning. The problem with that was a dollar five got you three Milwaukee's best at closing time. And that was the choice every night. Am I going to spend that dollar five? Because I couldn't drink yet. I was too jacked up, but I knew I was going to need one. I learned how to hop in the back of the bus because it had a middle door. And that's how my day began. Maybe a half hour sleep, maybe none. In the bus to work, home, do it again. Do it again, do it again, do it again. From the, from the, uh, from the hospital in Long Beach, they brought me down to show me a recovery home in Laguna Beach. I'd never heard of recovery homes. I'd never been to Laguna Beach. And I looked around and I said, yeah, I could do this. And dad's going to pay for it. I could really do this. This is, this is a step up. People speak English too. It's crazy. Because my opinion of myself was so low. Okay. I may have thought I was here. But at the same time, I knew I was here. We talk about in this room is about being an egomaniac with an inferiority complex. I had that. I had that in spades. I had everything that you had. But that was my introduction to Alcoholics Anonymous. And we went to three meetings a day. And we had a house meeting that night, every night. So I was there for seven months. I did not stay sober that whole time. I met people in here that uh, I was 29 years old at the time. Folks at the Canyon Club were not happy to see me. I was a live wire. Okay, The old AAers, a lot of them were not happy to hear from me. It's okay. There's other 12-step programs out there. If you have a problem other than alcohol, see me after the meeting. I'll direct you that way. <clears throat> For the first time in my life, I've seen people doing something other than getting loaded. And it looked like it was working for them. And I would keep getting loaded 20, after 20 days, after 30 days, after two months, because I met people in here and I'd go to meetings with and we'd talk about the good old times. And next thing you know, the good old times became, let's sneak off to Long Beach. 
that. Let's take the bus and go smoke crack in Long Beach. Or let's drink, let's do this, let's do that. So the people you meet here are just as sick as you are. (laughs) Not here to get well. But the morning meeting each day, we read things that I'd never read before. The third step prayer, the fifth step prayer, the seventh step prayer, and something called the prayer of St. Francis. We read that for the first, at first, at, with your cup of coffee in the morning, the prayer of St. Francis every day. And all this stuff started sinking in. And the people in Alcoholics Anonymous accepted me. And then if I got loaded, they would just pat me on the head and say, keep coming back. You're keeping us sober. But I knew this wouldn't work for me. Part of our book talks about uh, being constitutionally incapable of telling the truth. That was me. I was convinced I was that person. It would never work for me. It can't. And what that really means is I'm incapable of looking myself in the mirror and telling myself the truth. Because all these years I was out there, there was only one person after me. It was in the mirror. That person was trying to kill me. All those years. Nobody else. Was nobody else's fault. I was the only one after me. I would do things that caused the police to come after me, which they did at the car wash regularly because they knew where to find me after a while. Because I would uh, get drunk drivings and I would not go to AA because I would refuse. I knew what they did there. And you stand up and say you're an alcoholic. Somewhere in my mind, I knew that. I had a picture of a meeting. And I knew that if I ever did that, the jig was up. Once I stood up and admitted that to myself, the jig was up. This goes on for 11 months. The last two months of it, I had met a gentleman here. We, I had a place on the El Miguel Country Club just off the fairway there. He had a bunch of money, and I was going to help him spend it. His name was Andy, and he's dead now. Let me preface the story. Andy was a big fellow with missing teeth, but he was friends of the people I met in the recovery homes. He, he had that middle-aged whiskey drinker's voice. Hey, back when he was in his 30s, probably. Hey, Dave, let's go get some shit. That's how it would start. And we, we'd go to meetings in between. But then I took him up to the projects and he too fit in well in the projects. We'd be sitting around and we wouldn't be drinking. And there was a show on years ago called the Beverly Hillbillies. And if granny brought out that jug of rheumatism medicine, it was on for the day. That's all it took. And halfway through our jug, we were off for the projects. ABC, alcohol becomes crack for me. (laughs) That's the progression for me. I may have left out of the part where I love the taste of alcohol. I love the effect produced by alcohol. I've done many things on alcohol in blackouts that I get told about that I'm neither proud of nor wish would ever happen again. I was told that we were on a family vacation up at Lake Geneva, Wisconsin, 
And at four in the morning, I had a nine iron and was threatening the front line of the Northwestern football team because they were making too much noise in the pool. <laughs> in full blackout, I had my three brothers had pulled me back and I had a nine iron. I was going to take them on. That's not me. I'm not a fighter guy. But in a blackout, anything could happen. Along the way, all these years, bodies started accumulating. My friend Freaky Dude died uh, in our fraternity house. Special Ed put a bullet in his head. We attract people to us that are like us. And things go sideways. And I, I don't know. I don't know. I really, I really miss some of the guys. But this is the cost that we see here on a daily basis. I've been here for 35 years almost now. So many bodies, so many. I've been to funerals. Back up. The second gentleman I sponsored, Bradley Jacobs. I was working the hotline. He called it up. and I didn't have any money. I got all my chains together. I went and I picked him up and I took him to a meeting. Two or three years later, he called me up from over the apartment in Irvine. If you've ever seen starvation pictures of, of different people over the years. That's what it looked like, ribs. I just started crying. That's our disease. And I took his needles and I disposed of his guns. He didn't have to do crimes. That was a repo throwback, Greg. That was very good. Yeah. Repo man. That's where we end up. How do I not end up there? How am I able to be here today? How am I able to be here and not be a scourge on society and a good family member. How is that possible? Step one says, I'm powerless. Then it says, I'm insane. <laughs> <laughs> to be restored to something you don't have takes step two. And step two is a process. Over time, came to believe that it was working for you I knew it wouldn't work for me, but I, I believed it was working for you. I found me a sponsor who I believed it was working for. His name was Bill W. He was Greg's sponsor at the time as well. He's a Harley driver, but he was from New Jersey. And I knew it was working for him. I just knew it was. And I had become so desperate in this rooms to do whatever it would take to do, that I was willing to do anything this man said to do. Partially because I wanted it to work, but partially because I needed someone to blame when it didn't. Still waiting to blame that man for this not working. I can't, he can, three, I'll let him. I'll let him. I'm powerless. I'll, I need power. The state says they want money. My attorney wants money. I'm newly sober. I had a sponsor. I had a big book, and I had an attorney, and the, and the voyage began. I became willing to do anything around here. I was active seven nights a week in a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous or Fellowship in another program, Cocaine Anonymous. I found my people here. 
In Alcoholics Anonymous, I found old timers like Joe Quinn, salty old dogs who didn't really care about judging me one way or another. If I was willing to show up at his meeting and read one page a week or a paragraph in his big book study, thank you. That has stuck with me to this day. Joe Quinn, early's on time. On time is late, late's downright rude. It's not about you. Show up early, be of service. I remember that today. That saved my life. The damage we do to most of our families around here is just incalculable. How many nights my parents are like, is he alive? 3,000 miles away, is he alive? I would call and tell him how well I was. Is he alive? For the last 34 years, they have not had to uh, go to bed wondering, What's, is David in jail? Is he dead? Did he hurt someone? What's going on? I've had the same neighbors for the last 25 years. They've never seen me loaded. I've been a single parent the last 24 years. My son has never seen me loaded. He's seen me insane. (laughs) (laughs) He'll tell you. He was just saying to me the other day, what kind of father says to his kid, focus. He was probably eight or nine, and I just focus. I must have just watched like like was it platoon, <laughs> and I'd be the drill sergeant. He grew up around these rooms a little bit. I had sober people coming in and out of my house. My first sponsor ended up sobering up at my house and living there for seven years. I've had other members of our fellowship live on my couches over the time. Um, there's others that I've helped in, in many ways. They've all helped me more than I could ever help them. The core of our program is service to others. If, you, if you're here tonight and you're wondering whether you're an alcoholic, I'm not here to tell you are one way or another, but I am here to tell you that the answer is in here. It's like the cookbook, how to, how to unfuck your life (laughs) and stop fucking your neighbors, friends, families. Okay. This is how you do it. First 164 pages. That's it. It's an instruction manual. If you don't want to have what you have, do this. That's the only pitch. That's worthwhile in Alcoholics Anonymous. I saw the lady at the podium last night railing that book up. I was like, go, sister, go. She would talk about how the good old timers were not kind to her because don't you know how sensitive we are? But they were truthful to her and they saved her life. That's what saved her life. Stop doing what you're doing. Do what we're doing. We will help you. We are more than happy to help. I've been in service at many levels. I told you I had meeting uh, commitments the first uh, first two years of the program. I had I had coffee commitments every night. This forced me to do two things: one, go every night to a meeting, and two, call for a ride because I don't have a car. I did not get here with a job car, watch anything. I needed to reach out and talk to you and ask you, can you help me? 
The answer was always yes. Always. We get involved. We learn to help others. My first first gentleman I sponsored was a, I was 30 years old. The first gentleman I sponsored was a 50-something-year-old gay man married in Irvine. He was a brute. And he would put me in a headlock. And then, this is my sponsor. His name was Tommy Cannon. And Tommy Cannon chased me through the steps. I had to have answers for that man because he looked at me because he thought I had something that I could help him with, and I did. I miss him too. He passed, he passed along. If you're new here tonight, you don't ever have to be alone again. You don't ever have to live in fear again. And I'm telling you from this hopeless alcoholic, I found hope here. You know, we talk about miracles in the program. Everyone to use a miracle. Whether you know it or not. I didn't know what that meant until I got here. Miracles. I was like, ah, miracles. Ah, scoff at this, scoff. He came to scoff, he remained to pray. Miracles. Remember when I took one year sober, little Carla I came up to me and she said, little gal, David, you're our miracle. And I stood there like an idiot. I, and it sunk in. Alcoholics Anonymous works. Thanks for listening. Oh, yeah.